Please open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans, to chapter 6. We'll study verses 8 through 14. Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. This is a letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Rome. It's a very culturally diverse church with Christians of every sort of background, whether they are Gentile or Jews of birth. And Paul is writing to them to give them clear doctrine around which they may have unity and a hope in a hard world and a hard life. If you're visiting with us this morning, it's something to note that we study through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, word by word, omitting none of it, because we believe that the scriptures are the word of God in their substance and order. And we believe that God is wise in the way in which he has given us, yes, even the book of Romans, And so we're picking up where we left off a few weeks ago, and I hope that the Lord will bless you as we study the Word of God together. Romans chapter 6, verse 8. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired Word. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. May he give us understanding and secure us in the faith of his promises. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you that you are a God who has spoken, that your word is living, that it is sharp, that it pierces deeply into the hearts and the lives and the minds of mankind, that men and women and children may know Christ, that we may have hope in this life, O Lord, and in the life everlasting. Lord, help us to be those who would submit to Christ, who would sit under his word, and who would receive these wonderful truths gladly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Truth matters. Truth is honest and it tells us things the way they are and very and often in simple terms. Truth indicates to us the reality of the world around us and it indicates to us who we ourselves are, but it also gives us imperatives of why and how we should live our lives in this world 
and before God. And we've been in this study in the book of Romans for a year and about three weeks, just in case any of you were keeping tabs of how long it's taken us to get six chapters into a book. And what we've read and studied is Paul teaching us truth, a variety of truths, a great diversity of biblical truths. And chapter after chapter, Paul aims at very specific things. He's taught us about our own sinfulness and the indwelling rebellion of our hearts against the heavenly God. Not only that, he's told us about the truth of the judgment of God, that his eye pierces the heavens and the earth in the hearts and minds and lives of you and me, and that nothing is kept in a dark closet far from his eyes that he will not touch upon either in this life or in the day wherein we meet him. Paul has taught us about the justice of God, that God is holy, and in himself altogether righteous, and the things that he does are good. But he's like a ruler against which every single thing, every thought, every deed, and every word is judged. He's also taught us about the truth of God's law and why God gave it to keep us from sin, to show us that we are a sinful people, but ultimately to show us our need for a Savior in Christ Jesus. He's taught us about works and also about our own desire to be self righteous and self-sufficient and how those things utterly fail and they're passing how they can't be in any way the place of our security he's taught us the truth of this wonderful doctrine of justification by faith this thing that really just means how can we stand before God a friend and not an enemy and he says to all of us if you're going to stand before God reconciled to him It's only going to be by faith in his son. Not by faith in the things you have done. Not the faith in your church attendance. But rather faith in Jesus Christ who lived for you and died for you and has been resurrected for you. And so now when we come to chapter 6, we're continuing and Paul is sharing with us other indicatives. Things that tell us truth. And so this morning we have sort of a strange structure to the sermon. It's just the structure of Scripture. We have three indicative truths. That's your first point. We're going to talk about them kind of like sub-points. So your first point, three indicative truths, verses 8 through 10. Three indicative truths. But one of the things you may have noticed as we've studied is that in all the chapters... There have not yet been imperatives. And if you're not a person, that's okay. You may be sitting and scratching your head saying, all right, indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives are basically a statement of truth or a statement of fact. And then imperatives, biblically speaking, are what you are commanded to do in light of the indicatives. There's an order. Indicatives come first. And then the things that you should do and how you should live in light, those imperatives. And so we have imperatives for the first time in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. He's he's finally getting to the sermon application, if you will understand it in that term. And so we have as our second point, four imperative applications. 
four imperative applications, verses 11 through 14. And if you're a counter, you think, well, pastor, you gave us two points, but you seem to have snuck in seven. And that's exactly true. So, two, uh, three indicative truths and four imperative applications. As we look at verse 8, we come into the middle of Paul's discussion where previously he has explained to us this wonderful truth of our union with Christ. At least half, at least half of this wonderful truth. And that is we are united with Christ in his death on the cross. And it's not a wrong thing to say. We can, I think, say with a clear face and a good conscience biblically... That when you believe in Jesus, you're united to him in the first place in his death. So the statement could be, in Christ you die. That's a very strange thing. We don't often hear that in churches. Something I mentioned a few weeks ago. You've probably heard, go to Christ and live. Wonderfully true. That's the main part of the text today. But it is equally true that in Christ, when he hung on the cross... He died because our sins he took upon himself. Our souls were united with him like intertangled, intertwined roots. The word there used earlier in this chapter, it's it's being planted together like two seeds in one hole taking root and growing up in life together. That's the picture, the depiction of the way the Bible describes this. And Paul is happy for us to know and to think on that in Christ all of our guilt all of our fallenness all of our sinful mind and heart and desires all of those things hung on the cross in union with Jesus together with them holding hands that don't let go and they died the punishment that they deserved And you may say, well, that's kind of hard news. But it's good news. Because sin deserves punishment. And if it has already been put to death, and that says to you, Christian, you don't have to fear death. And so we come into the passage where Paul continues to describe for us the wonderful doctrine of union with Christ. How we're all tied up with him. Planted with him. And Paul wants to say we are united to him and his life. We are united to him and his life. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, the thing he's already told us, he says we believe that we also live with him. And so the first indicative truth, the first statement that I want you to hear that I believe the Bible's teaching is that union with Christ is for life. Or maybe I can put it in a term that's a little easier. Is for living. It's for living. Union with Christ is for life, for living. Whenever I would ask you about your Christian faith, your walk with Christ... I think you're probably going to give me a very similar answer to most Christians, right? Uh, you're going to speak, if I, if I just ask you the question, put you on the point, tell me about your life with Christ. Most Christians are going to begin with this, I believed in Jesus, 
because he died for me. And that is wonderfully true. There is no Christian faith. There is no Christian freedom. There is no Christian salvation apart from the agony, the suffering, and the groaning of Jesus. If he didn't hang for you, you would still be guilty before your God. If he didn't take all of God's wrath for you, you would have no safety before the throne of God. It's wonderfully true. But it's only half of the picture. But one of the things that I want you to see this morning, and I think it's, it's really worth you taking a look at. It's worth us getting in our minds and kind of writing it on our souls. Is that it's not just that your past self died in him. It's not just that those sins have been dealt with. But you're still in union with him in his life. Of course you know the story of Christ. You know the telling that the Bible gives. That Jesus hung on a cross and he died and that they placed him in a grave. You know that. It's simple. People know it in the world. But you also know that there was a day where the stone was rolled away. That Jesus didn't stay dead. He was dead for three days. And then he was raised from the dead. He didn't remain under the power of death, but he walked forward in living, wonderful form with feet that could feel the ground under him, with lungs that drew breath, with a, a tongue that produced sound and spoke, with a voice, with a mind. He could feel doorknobs whenever he needed to open them. He enjoyed the taste of fish as he sat on the seashore with his disciples. Christ was really alive, not just seemingly alive. Jesus wasn't a disembodied spirit. It's the full Christ, the entire God-man, was resurrected from the dead. And if you were with him, and all your sins hung with him on the cross, you were also with him whenever Jesus breathed again and set foot outside of the grave. United with Christ in his death and united with Christ in his life. The cross doesn't just have an effect on what you have been and who you, uh, the things you have done, but rather it has an effect on who you are right now. And so I want to tell the Christians, my brothers and sisters and in him, that right now, if you have a saving interest in him, right now, You're still in union with him. And if he died for you and you hung with him, likewise you have life with him now. The cross doesn't just look back. It concerns where you are now. And I just love, if you look at the text, at least for some of the linguists in the room, you can see it in the English too, verse 8. It says, now if we have died with Christ, a simple idea, almost a past tense in the original, we, uh, we have the, the second part of that verse, we believe that we will also live with him. That will also, symbolic of the future tense, a translation of that, if you will. I want to ask you Christians, are you living like you're in union with Christ? Is the life you're living right now showing the reality that you're a member of his body, that you're not far from him, 
that yes, while he's ascended, yes, he is at the right hand of the Father and he's living, that you still have a direct, meaningful, spiritual relationship with him. Your union with Christ is intended to teach you how you ought to live. It's an indicative that we're going to see in a second. It gives us some wonderful imperatives. The second indicative or the statement of truth that we have from the text is in verses 9 and 10. And it's that Christ broke the bondage of death forever. Christ broke the bondage of death forever. And what we read in verse 9 is, well, it's a quite confident statement. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And then in verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But it's this first, uh, these first few words here in verse 9. We know there's absolute assurance here in the heart of Paul. This is a strong way of saying it, especially in the original. We know this is a, an assured mind. He's con- completely convinced of these things. It has to do not just with baseless faith, but the evidence of an empty tomb that, Christ, that Paul can say these things. But let's look at what he knows. It's that Christ being raised from the dead, that he was resurrected, that he was resurrected. He believes and knows that if Christ was resurrected from the dead, that he will never die again. And that means that death no longer has dominion over him. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying if death couldn't hold him the first time, if Jesus was able to conquer death, if he was able to shake it off as an enemy that was defeated and walk forward in life, that he's not subject to death anymore. Death isn't a consistent or continual fear or a reality that Christ needs to look over his shoulder and be concerned with. He's already conquered death. He's died and that death could not hold him. Paul describes it in the language of slavery. He says uh, in verse 9 that death no longer has dominion over him. And you may say, well, really, could anything have dominion over Christ? I mean, isn't he the Lord and the King of glory, the ruler of all creation? Isn't he the prophet, priest, and king? The creator? How could something have dominion over him? Christ took your punishment upon himself and he submitted himself unto death. And he continued under it for a time. That's what we're talking about here. Christ willful giving up of his own life that no one could take from him, he submitted himself to the slavery that sin causes in death. Now let me put this into some terms that I think might be helpful. You need to understand that sin and death have a relationship. You may think, well, okay, Sin's a religious term. 
Uh, death is more of a biological term, but I want to tell you that the Bible explains that death entered the world because of sin. It's the result of sin. It's, it's the effect, that long arc. That when sin entered the world, that death entered with it, and that death is actually the punishment for sin. Right? These things are related. They're not separate. They, they have their own roots all tangled up one uh, with the other. But if you think of life and you think of maybe the way that people live, you could think basically like this. Who can escape death? I forget who it is. I'm not even sure history knows, but there's a ratio generally given. It's a stat, statistic. One out of one dies. Or you have another phrase, and people say it like this. Uh, there are two things in life that are absolutely sure. It's quite atheistic to say something like this, but you could be sure of death and taxes, right? I'm pretty sure there's a place we could find where at least nobody's ready to tax you yet, but death is going to be there. I could send you to the moon. You probably wouldn't get taxed. Maybe somebody would try. Our own government might have a scheme for that. Life on the moon means taxes in Germany. Um, but you could freeze to death. You could not be able to breathe in the vacuum of space. Death is a reality, right? It's a significant thing. It's, a, it's like a slave master, and it has chains that are exacting. And, and when those locks are placed around uh, the, the wrist and, and the ankles of a person, it's, well, there's not a lot that you can generally do. I mean, yes, there are life-saving measures that a physician may employ, Take a defibrillator, place it on the chest of a person and just shock them. You've seen it on TV, the chest rises. It's kind of dramatic. Um, Could be. It might restart the heart. But if it does restart the heart, it doesn't mean that person's going to live forever. Death is still coming. It's an exacting slave master. And it has a dominion that's almost absolute over this world. And it's, it's hard. And in fact, you know, you can look to the heights of mountains and to the depths of the earth. And in any case, you're going to, well, find uh, two things in general. You're going to find the reality that God is real and also the frailty of your own life, the possibility and possibly even the reality of death. What Paul's telling us is that Jesus broke those chains. Death could not hold him. He conquered death. And that when he died, he died to sin or because of sin. It's on the account of what we did. Paul draws that correlation that I mentioned to you earlier. That sin causes death. And he's saying the death of Christ is on the grounds of what? Maybe if I ask you the question, why did Jesus die? I'd get a lot of answers. Some people might say, well, you know, he died for me. He died because I believed in him. That's very true. Other people might say, well, he died. He was, he was beaten brutally, right? He was pierced hands and feet. He was crucified. And, and pastor, uh, I've read a couple biological texts on that. And people say, pastor, that that's a terrible way to go. The lungs flood and the person can't breathe. And so they, they suffocate in their own body liquids. And that's how he died, right? What Paul is saying to us is he died because of sin. And there's a magnificent truth. When I ask the kids of the church, did Jesus ever sin? What's the answer? No. 
He lived a sinless life. Whose sin is it that killed Christ? Our sin. If he died on the account of sin, we ask the question, why did Christ die? We have to simply say in honesty, because I sinned and am guilty and he took my guilt and sin. Paul tells us he died once and for all. That it happened. He's not going to die again and again. There's no re-sacrifice of Christ. There's, there is at one and the same time this wonderful truth that Christ broke the bondage of death. He conquered it. And he reigns victorious over it. We go on and we continue to read... And the third indicative is that Christ is living for the glory of God in verse 10. Christ is living for the glory of God, verse 10. Oftentimes we speak of Jesus, we talk about his earthly life, right? We talk about his earthly ministry. We talk about past tense Christ. The things he did, the places he was. Some of you may have gotten the opportunity, one that I haven't gotten yet, but to go and visit Jerusalem and Israel and Capernaum and the Dead Sea and all these wonderful places where the historical sites and the, the, the facts of Christ's life were played out. But if I ask you right now, how would you des- describe Christ or talk on him? Would you speak of him in the present tense? Well, that's what Paul does here. He speaks of him in verse 10 in the present tense. We read that the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Present tense. Today, right now, he's living. And friends, I really hope that you have some sense of this. That Jesus is not an ancient rabbi or messiah that died and is a piece of history that just changed the world. We've already said it. We've already seen it. We've already studied it. He was resurrected. We might ought to say he is resurrected. And he is presently living. That means he has a body, he has an address. You've heard me say things like this when we serve the Lord's Supper. And I ask the question, where is Christ present? And I tell you, he's at the right hand of the Father. That if you knew in space and time where to go, his humanity occupies space and time. You could go see him and behold his face. He's got human eyes that are still blinking. He's got human hands that are immortal, that are still touching and feeling, and a voice that still speaks and feasts with a tongue that tastes. Christ lives, and this is a reality for the Christian, that you've got to try to at least get a little bit of your mind around. What the Bible tells us is that Christ, after his resurrection, was taken up in glory. He didn't die. He just went to live in the presence and before the face of God. That's part of what Paul's telling you. That he's living. The second part of this is the quality of his life. Verse 10. He lives in this specific way to God. 
to God, before God. Quorum Deo, before the face of God. And though Paul doesn't give us all the details of this, we can then think on what it means to live to God. What could this mean? Well, I can just simply say it cannot possibly mean less than that Christ is living and is concerned with the delight, the pleasure, the honor, the praise, the glory of his Father. It's impossible to think about the way Christ talks about his relationship to the Father during his earthly teaching, right? And not imagine that this intimacy of fellowship and love, the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father, that in any way has stopped to its wonderful relationship in heaven. That it ceased to be. It only makes every amount of sense that it's gotten deeper and more beautiful and more personal and sweeter that it has been a continued experience of the Son offering His heart to His Father in submission. Jesus is living a blessed existence to God. That's an indicative, a thing, a truth that Paul is telling you. Christ is living now, right now, January 22nd, 2023, He is living before the face of God, concerned with the delight of the Father. And now we get to the imperatives. He's told you what is, and now he's going to tell you how you ought to be because of it. How the truth should penetrate your heart, change your life, change your mind, change the way you see and do things. Verses 11 through 14, here are the four imperatives And I'm not just making this up. This is actually the form of the verbs. Okay, verbal tense. This is where we're coming from it, okay? Verse 11, the first one. Know who you are. Know who you are. Verse 12. Don't be ruled by sin. Verse 13, the first portion. Don't give your body to sin. And then the second portion of verse 13 Give yourself to God. Let's go through. Know who you are. Look at it with me. In light of everything he's already taught, in verse 11, we have the words, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So these things are true about Jesus. He broke the power of sin and its bondage. He broke the power of death and reigned over it in life. So you Christians, so you church, also must consider yourselves. Know who you are. That's what he's saying. He says two things. That you should consider yourselves or how you should know yourself dead to sin, alive to God, and in Christ Jesus. And I think I can give you an illustration of some importance here. I hope that as Lucas translates, this is simple. Um, a couple years ago, we lived in a, a different home in Merringen, and uh, it was uh, 
a townhome, a row house, and it had four floors, and on the top floor was my office. Full of books, full of dust, full of papers everywhere, a mess the way a good thinking mind ought to keep it. And at one point in the middle of the week, I'm, I'm studying, and I hear footsteps running super fast up the stairs, boom, 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 all the way, and it would just echo and kind of shake the house like thunder. And all of a sudden, the door to my office flung open, hadn't ran in, slammed the door, and hid behind the chair in my office, and he just let out this peep, Benjamin's going to kill me. And so I turned around real quick, what happened? And I can already hear, as I'm asking what happened, there is a thunder and it's coming up the stairwell. And if you know my kids, you know there's some different personality. And Benjamin has the rage of death. And he's coming. And Haddon says, Dad, we were playing. He didn't do what I wanted him to do. And uh, so, so I, I punched him in the face. I punched him in the face. Little boys. I said, yeah, you probably should hide. And right about that time I got up and I could hear Benjamin's getting close. The storm is about to hit. And as he's about to open the door, I don't know how he knew where Haddon was, but he had... He'd located him, and I opened the door, and Benjamin, I just see the terror and fear. All the anger, all the rage just went to pure submission. Dad, he punched me in the face. And I said, okay, you calm down. You sit here, you sit here. They're still looking like, you know, Benjamin wants to tear Haddon up. And I, I'm being a good dad, trying to be a good dad, and, and I just I sat and I looked at the kids. I said, boys, who are you? Who are you guys? I'm aiming at an answer that I don't get. I'm aiming at the answer, well, we're brothers. Brothers are supposed to love each other, right? That's the model. I got an entirely different answer. They said basically in union or unity with each other, um, Dad, we're little Christian boys. We're little Christian boys. And there's so much there to be said because the thing that they're telling me is who they are. Christians need to know who they are. And my sons had a better application than I could ever have brought to them. They knew not only they were little boys or they were brothers, but rather they're Christians and that it wasn't appropriate for little Christian boys to behave like this. For a little Christian Haddon to punch a little Christian Benjamin in the face. That just it's not, it's not what a little Christian boy would do. And Paul is saying to you and to me, Christians, know who you are. And he tells you who you are. And it has great impact on everything you do. You are someone who is dead to sin. Sin does not have a hold on you, Christian. You're not alive. You're not its slave. No, no, no. You've died to it. It cannot hold anything over you. You can look into the face of your sin that you struggle with and you can just simply point a finger and say, no, you are not my master. You are not my captain. You are not my boss. You're dead to sin, Christian. 
Christian, you're also someone else. You're someone who is alive to God. If Jesus was raised from the dead, and He is, and if He lives in the face of the Father, and He does, you are alive in Him. And Christian, know that you are alive to God. You're free like a son and a daughter that may sit in His presence and look in His face, who He delights to hear. You're alive to God. You're not dead in your sin. You're dead to it. You're not dead in it. But then thirdly, who are you? You are a Christian in union with Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. And so Christian, I want to tell you this. When you think about your behavior, your conduct of life, your struggles in this life, you should never ever think of anything you do not having a direct impact upon the Lord with whom you are united. You are a part of Him. You are united with Him. You have roots that are intertwined with His. And you are growing up and living together, co-planted before the face of God. Who are you? Know who you are, Christian. Secondly, Paul has another imperative that is downstream. This has a good order. Know who you are because of who you are. Verse 12, don't be ruled by sin. That's what he wants to tell you. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's pretty simple. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Because of who you are, insist on your freedom. Insist on your strength. Insist in your own mind and to your body that you're not a slave to the hands that like to sin, to the eyes that like to look. To the tongue that likes to curse. To the ears that like to hear cursing. That's not who you are. And Paul says very, very clearly, let not sin therefore reign. He's saying you, you Christian, have the call, the command, and the power to wage war against sin that would love to bring you back into slavery. Don't let it happen. Don't let it rule you. Don't give in to it. Don't bow a knee to it. Bow a knee to Christ. And some of you are saying, but pastor, sin's really hard to deal with. I got sins that I'm struggling with. The Bible doesn't look past that. Paul doesn't look past that. Persistent sins. But he's also telling you a very wonderful truth that in Christ you are not powerless against them. And you may say, well, then how, what do we do with this? Well, how, how, do I, how do I take this, uh, this imperative, this command from the Scriptures? Well, I think I'm, I just got to say it. You and I are going to have to revolt against sin. And we're going to have to fight and we're going to have to wage war and we're going to have to plan and we're going to have to have a battle plan laid before us that we in every way Don't let it win the battle that we are equipped to win. 
the doubts in our minds, the, the questions that are sinful within themselves to be waged war against so that we do not let ourselves come under the rule of sin that Christ has conquered and that we have already died to. Don't be ruled by sin. Verse 13, we have the third imperative. Don't give your body to sin. Sounds kind of repetitive, but Paul is concerned, and he also knows a thing about you and about me, that sin doesn't just happen in our mind. It doesn't just happen out there with the things we look at with our eyes. It happens in the taste and the delights of the body. You're not, you're not like a, a spirit body uh, you know, separated thing. These things are together. Your body struggles with sin, the body of flesh that we read about in the scriptures constantly. And Paul writes about a lot. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Again, it's got that strong weight, the weight of a command. Do not. What's he talking about? Well, friends, I think he's giving you some instruction. Kind of a battle plan in itself. Because he knows that if you're free from sin, if you've already been a person who's died to sin, that if sin ever gets any part of you, it's because what? You've submitted yourself over to it. You've given up. You've rolled over. You said, okay, I'll do whatever you want. Use my body as an instrument for unrighteousness. And he says to you, Christian, don't present your hands. Don't present your eyes. Don't present your mind. Don't present your heart. What does that mean? Very practically, it can mean don't go where you know you're going to sin. Man, you know you struggle with sexual sin, probably stay away from the beach sometimes. You know you got a a problem with gossip, maybe hold off on going and hanging out with people who you like to gossip with and about. If you know you struggle with gambling, stay away from The opportunities to gamble. Delete the apps. Don't go into the casinos. If you know you struggle with all these different things, don't submit yourself to it. Wage war against it. Strategize and keep yourself to yourself so that you can then give yourself to God. The fourth imperative, verse 13, give yourself to God. We've already talked about all these things about Christ, His death, his resurrection, and his life. And Paul is just in turn saying exactly, do what Christ is doing. Don't be an instrument of sin, but rather give your hands, your tongue, your lips, your ears, your eyes, your body. Give it to God as an instrument of righteousness. As Christ lives, live like him. How do you do that? Well, you're going to be a person that from the heart focuses on Christ and on the God of heaven. It may mean that you read the scriptures, but not in a legalistic way, but in a way that you're mining, yes, for gold and jewels, but rather also you're taking a scooper and you're dipping it into the honey to taste its sweetness once more. 
You're in prayer so that your tongue praises God and relies on Him. And the hands are clasped only in trust of Him, not in trust of their own strength. And you're bowed beneath Him because He's the King. And your mind is taken up in the singing of praise and the memorization of psalms where the Word of God pierces the heart and characterizes the language of the tongue of a Christian. Give yourself to God. You might say, well, Pastor, that just sounds like what we do in worship. Yes, it is what we do in worship. But it is also what you and I are called to do every single day, whether we are in a business meeting, praying in our hearts, walking in a park, singing praises to the Lord, either out loud or in our minds and hearts. We're to be a people devoted to God. The imperatives. Give yourself to God, Christian, because of who you are in Christ. He ends with another indicative, if I may, another truth that he wants to tell you, and it has to do with you because of everything of what he's already said. Verse 14, this is how he closes this. For sin will have no dominion over you. Christ broke its dominion over himself. It will have none over you. This is future tense. This is talking about today and tomorrow. This is talking about two hours from now and 20 years from now. You are not sin's slave. You will not be sin's slave. And this is why. Because you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Christ has cleansed you. Christ has purchased you. Not because of anything you did, a fulfillment of a a prescribed list, none of that, but because of what he did. That's why you're free. That's why these imperatives aren't just pious suggestions, but absolutely things that Christ has given you freedom to enjoy because of his grace. Because he died your death and was resurrected, and you have resurrection life with him. You've been cleansed by his blood, and you are beloved and treasured by his heart. Christians, know who you are and live after Christ. Live unto God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you, Lord, for how Paul writes... To the ancient church in Rome, how you are speaking to us this morning in Stuttgart. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to live in light of the truth of the gospel. Who you have purchased us and made us to be, O Lord. And we pray that you would give us strength. Lord, give us a heart. Give us all the weapons of a spiritual warfare. Oh, Lord, help us to be a people who would imitate our Savior and who would live a life of godly delight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.